Welcome to the Happy Homeschool, where we talk about creative homeschool inspiration rooted in relationships for the nonconformist, dedicated parent. I'm Laura Blodgett. And my goal at the Happy Homeschool is to inspire and equip you to create a learning environment that makes home everyone's favorite place. You can always read more at thehappyhomeschool.com. Hello, I'm Laura. Today we are going to talk about the most important thing to teach your children, who God is. This is unashamedly from a Christian perspective because, first of all, I am a Christian and because it is just that important. If you are not a Christian, maybe by listening to this you will gain some understanding of why we think it is so important as Christians. And for anyone who would like an overview of the difference between morality, faith, and religion, I recommend going and listening to episodes 13, 14, and 15, which talk about those. Here's what I'm going to cover in this discussion. I'm going to cover some common objections, which include indoctrination, uh, the fact that the kids have individual choice, that it's too complicated, or some supposed contradiction with science why this is associated with, but not the exact same as a worldview. Uh, we're going to talk about priorities and perspectives that matter. We're going to specifically talk about sharing your faith with your children and biblical promises versus biblical admonitions. But what this is not, is this is not a condemnation of anyone, and it is not a formula. So let's talk about objections to teaching your child about who God is. The first thing you will often hear is the cry of indoctrination by those who themselves want to indoctrinate your children. If you look at the definition of indoctrination, it simply means instruction in the rudiments and principles of any science or system of belief, or in other words, information. Everyone has a system of belief. Anything taught will be taught from that perspective. You teach your children this because it helps them evaluate all the information they will receive and filter over their lives. The meaning of the word indoctrination has been twisted over the years, and since language is also a matter of how people use words, we need to acknowledge that some people do use the word indoctrination to mean teaching to accept doctrines uncritically or repeating an idea or belief until it is accepted uncritically, such as in brainwashing through threat or deprivation. That is obviously not the type of indoctrination or teaching that we are talking about here. No wise Christian parent wants to or sees the value in that type of approach because we know that, one, we have a reasonable faith, and two, it would make our children vulnerable to the wrong ideas about God. So in the midst of teaching them about God, we are still teaching them how to think. The objection of individual choice takes two forms. From a Christian perspective, we know that each person has autonomy over their own heart and mind. The choice of accepting or rejecting the truths of God is his or her choice to make. So on one hand, there is nothing as a parent you can do to make that decision for them. We'll get more into that later. But from a non-Christian point of view, it is unfair of Christian parents to do anything to sway an individual's choice of faith. But this is wrong in two ways. First, everyone, teacher, parent, friend, shares knowledge and philosophy with a child. This is unavoidable. Second, if you know there is a cliff ahead, a matter of life or death, you do not say, well, I will just let them discover the consequences of life for themselves. If they perish, they perish. 
Another objection that some people have is that it's just too complicated to try and teach your children who God is. Religious leaders of all stripes have done a good job of creating systems wherein we need them in order to understand God. Whether it be for money, power, arrogance, or even ignorance, ironically, even the so-called Christian system tends toward this. But knowing God is not an academic affair, and basic truths of who he is and how to approach him are quite clear. While it is true we can learn the depths of this from Scripture throughout our lives, and we can learn from and encourage one another based on God's Word, still a parent is quite capable of teaching and reading the Bible to their children, and most of us know how to read. That is why God has preserved it for us. We might as well touch on the veracity of the Bible, also known as Scripture, also known as God's Word. There are many ways to validate the reliability of the text, including ancient copies and the Bible itself, such as Jesus quoting from the Old Testament, attributing it to Moses, and references to Daniel. And there are other historical references to Jesus. But there are those who both mock and lie. It is not their aim to discover truth. It is their goal to spit in God's face. They offer no hope, no answers, and no foundational meaning to our existence. And for some perverse reason, they would like others to join them there. But the main point of this section of the discussion is that God's truth is not too complicated for parents to teach. The lies and deceptions of rebellious men try to make it seem so, but God is not hard to find. Now let's talk about the objection that they try to encapsulate in the word science. Science is one of the most abused words on the planet. In its purest form, science is an attempt to understand the world around us and use that knowledge to harness natural phenomena, processes created and sustained by God's power, to our advantage. The wheel is based on science. Electrical use is based on science. But science is, by definition, human understanding, and as such, it is limited and changing, and it is inherently based on our philosophy of life. Our philosophy profoundly affects our evaluation of what we see around us. Since God, as creator, is outside of this universe, we cannot measure him scientifically. We can measure and calculate what he made— the magnificence of which is meant to point us to his magnificence, but he cannot be contained in any of our experiences. Knowing this, one could then better understand why he caused the Bible to be written and preserved for us. It brings clarity to what he has created and why. When men, in their ignorance or arrogance, try to claim science or historical record overrides the Bible, they are proven wrong again and again. This is not to say that sometimes the ignorance of men doesn't misunderstand scientific truths present in the Bible. For instance, a reading of the Bible clearly supports the idea of a spherical earth, whereas some poetical phrases are based on local experiences with distance. And here I will refer you to Isaiah 40, verse 22, and Job chapter 26, verse 10, and verse 7. I know that's backwards. And then also to the organization Answers in Genesis, which has a website, AnswersInGenesis.org, which has a lot of articles written by high-caliber scientists about these claims that science is at odds with the Bible, which it isn't. This is just a summary of a broader discussion that could be have, 
the point being that there is no true science that contradicts or disproves sections of the Bible, and we as parents do not need to be intimidated by that. Now let me be very clear about what this discussion is not. This is not a condemnation of parents who have unbelieving children. While on one hand the Bible makes it clear we are to pass these truths on to our children, it is also clear that each individual is responsible for his or her own choices. Are there things you can do to give your children a strong foundation for making choices? I think that is what God, through the Bible, tells us. If there was no point or hope in sharing these things, there would not be encouragement to do so. For another example, he gives us guidance about how to have a good marriage. If you follow this guidance, you have a much better chance of a happy and satisfying marital relationship. But if you started out as not a Christian or made poor choices in a partner, for example, it is going to be much more challenging to walk out those principles in your marriage. Not that it can't be done, but the consequences of previous influences will have an impact. Similarly, there are parenting choices that will make teaching your children about God harder or more of a battle. There is good reason to believe and think that one of those factors is whose authority you cede to for their overall education. Every other person a parent cedes the parental role to naturally diminishes the respect the child will have for the parent's teaching. There is also simply the time factor. So this is not a condemnation partly because of individual choice and partly because I am humbly grateful for God guiding me on the path of parenting that he did. I claim no superiority other than the superiority of God's principles. It is those I am attempting to encourage you in. But as I said before, this is not a formula. Knowing truth and following it to reconciliation with God is a matter of the heart and mind. It requires the conscious interaction of each person. It is not like adding two inanimate chemicals together, say baking soda and vinegar, and knowing you will get bubbles. It is more like telling your child that if they add baking soda to vinegar, they will get wonderfully fluffy pancakes. But if they choose to ignore or misrepresent what is observed, they could say things like, I don't like the smell of vinegar, and then they never try putting it in the batter. Or they could add it the wrong way and not end up with bubbles, then claim you lied. And they could see the bubbles, but refuse to admit it was caused by the combination. You may ask, how could they deny something so obvious? Well, sometimes I think God rolls his eyes at people for the same reason. But obviously, this analogy is limited because God knows the beginning from the end. But there are several scriptures saying he laughs at the arrogance of men. Because while teaching your children the truth about God is not a formula that controls them, an honest representation with love of the truth has an impact. And I have observed that if you teach children the truth from a young age, they readily apply it and it helps them appropriately filter the lies of the world and deceptions of their own sinful tendencies. Now let's talk a little bit about the idea of worldview versus Bible. And I want to do this because the idea of teaching worldview is very popular among homeschoolers in particular. Now, I do think that worldview is important, and the idea of a biblical worldview helps evaluate other worldviews to recognize assumptions and philosophies. But I think that sometimes in the discussion of worldview, we can adopt vocabulary and approaches that inadvertently devalue the Bible as God's word. 
We need to be careful that in saying we have a biblical worldview, that we never let that slide into something like the Bible is just a good moral guide, or the Bible is a guide to self-discovery, or the Bible is the best but not infallible directly from God, or the Bible is the beginning of our discussion about who God is. Too many Christians are embarrassed to stand by the reliability of how God has chosen to present things in the Bible. But once you start saying this section or that section needs to be revised based on human wisdom, knowledge, or philosophy, you have started the process of asking, did God really say? Does that sound familiar? I think it started in the garden with Eve and a snake. Some people try to say that you can have a biblical worldview while trying to make various sections of the Bible usually the important miraculous parts, conform to the false comfort of human ideas. This will likely make any sharing of this truth weak because the foundation is weak. So while an individual does not have to have a perfect understanding of the whole Bible to accept that Jesus died for our sins, if someone says he or she has a biblical worldview while denying God's character and plan as he has explained it in the Bible— He may have moral agreement with the Bible in some ways, but he doesn't have a biblical view of the world. Your view of God and sin matter. They can be incomplete in some respects, but if the concepts of them as presented throughout the Bible are denied or distorted, this is another matter entirely. So now let's talk about priorities and perspectives that matter when teaching your children who God is. And I've already covered a lot about perspectives, but let's sum that up. Teaching your children truth is good and right. It is something a parent is capable of doing and is admonished biblically to do. Each person has the autonomous responsibility to decide to recognize and follow truth. Human philosophies and apparent learning have no authority over God's revelation of the world and his workings. Claiming to respect the Bible but without respecting it as God's reliable revelation of himself is a foundation of sand. At some point, you're going to have the very specific question of how do you impart the truth of who God is to your child? Specifically, how? Well, you employ a combination of priorities and attitude. In a nutshell, you make teaching them God's word an integral part of your lives, and you make sure your own attitude is one of confident humility. You are confident of your reasonable faith, and you are humble because of your need for God's grace and your need to respect your child's autonomy of heart and mind. You also should be making a very obvious effort to live according to these principles that you're teaching in everything from how you treat your own husband to how you treat the stranger that you run across in the grocery store. Your children will observe these things, and they will take you more seriously if they see you living according to what you are teaching. But they can't know what you are living according to if you don't tell them specifically. Now, when I talk about teaching humbly, this doesn't mean that you don't correct wrong ideas or speak the truth with zeal. It means that there is never an attitude of, you will obey me in accepting this, or you will be rejected or mocked if you don't accept it. Those are both mistakes that many religions make, which is why adherents don't necessarily examine their own hearts and they fake their faith. How exactly do you make teaching faith a priority? Are there specific actions you can take? I think so. And let me take a moment to give credit to an author that I can't remember that I read many years ago when I was first beginning to teach my kids at home. And that person simply wrote, if you are going to teach your children at home, 
why wouldn't you give priority to the most important subject in life? So now I'm going to tell you how we made it a priority. And the way it looks in your family may not be exactly the same, because like I said, this isn't a formula, but I think you can get some ideas from this. So every routine day in our home, I read aloud from the Bible to our children after breakfast. What did that look like? First, routine day meant that we didn't have any guilt about holidays or days that were more flexible for other activities. However, on the whole, we read relatively long consecutive Bible passages five days a week. The length would depend some on the average age of our children, but our children had an age range of 13 years. So I tended to read lengths suitable for the older children, but also explain a lot of things and have activities that made the younger children be involved. At some point, I began recording these Bible readings on those ancient audio tapes because my husband wanted to listen during his commute. I mentioned we usually did the reading time after breakfast, which was after a time of active chores because I was aware of not making them sit too long first thing in the day. During the Bible reading, the children usually drew something that represented what was being listened to. Very young children sometimes played quietly with something like Duplos, and yes, they can be quiet. When they were older, sometimes the kids took turns reading. We discussed and compared with previous sections we had read. And I'd like to point out right here that when you are reading a lot of the Bible regularly in good-sized sections, it gets to be very easy to compare to previous things you have read. We also always had a passage that we were memorizing, and I will go into how we did that another time, and we prayed together. They were required to be there, but it was established in our home that we parents lovingly guided their learning. Though on any given day a child may have preferred to do something else, it was obvious both then and now that these times were enjoyed and valued by our children. But how can that be, you ask? Isn't it commonly accepted that children chafe at formal religious catechism? Let's examine that assumption or claim. First of all, extremes make good stories. But also, sometimes people have bad attitudes and skew what has been going on in their childhood. But also, harsh religious upbringings have existed, but that doesn't discount from the loving sharing of faith and truth. People are often lazy and ignorant about the difference between moral rules, house rules, cultural norms, religious rituals, religious legalism, and a loving reconciliation with God. Our children knew without a doubt that we had dedicated our lives to their upbringing that they were a top priority for our time and energy, that we had an honest concern for their hearts and souls, and we were presenting all of this to them as autonomous, responsible individuals. We were constantly aware of and evaluating their needs for everything from physical activity to learning about the universe. The result was that they loved spending time with us and learning from us, they heard the word of God come alive as I read it to them because it was alive and life-giving to me. We also investigated some claims of non-believers and what those were based on, but mostly we time and time again could see how those claims to disprove or distort any part of the Bible are shown wrong. There is no reason to start with the very fallible and often prideful philosophies of mankind. We all saw time and time again how those who are bitter, arrogant, shallow, or wanting to enjoy sin will lie, 
misrepresent, and ignore God's Word. We saw how the Word of God is truly the only thing that pulls all the cords of life together into a picture, plan, and promise that makes sense. Whether it be evil, or our sense of morality, or our awe of creation, or our failures, or our death, or the tides of history, nothing else offers the hope and clarity of God's Word. Nothing. We saw how the Bible confirms itself both in history and its explanation of the description of mankind, and so we continued to read through the Bible together until the last child graduated from our parental supervision. We were all fortified by it because it is the Word of God. I often joked that if you read the Bible to your children, every uncomfortable issue of life will come up. It covers the worst and the best. By the time our children reached adulthood, we had talked about everything. They were not blindsided by culture or man-made philosophies. That doesn't mean they were perfect or never had challenges, or that they remembered every single thing, but their solid foundation was just that, solid. They evaluated college professors without any prompting from us. They evaluated friendships, asking for our counsel. They did not rebel against their, quote, religious upbringing, unquote. Maybe this was partly because there was no oppression involved. Now, let me add a few more things to this picture of how we taught our children who, about who God is. One, I became convinced early on that my attitude toward my husband, their father, had a huge impact on how they received our guidance. If I couldn't live in a loving, humble way in front of them on a daily basis, then why should they listen to me? Two, I think it is useful to know that part of their childhood involved watching their sister, our third of seven, suffer from and die from acute leukemia. She lived, we all lived, with this issue for about two years. So our children are children who faced death at a young age. They are not just glibly entering adulthood, never having experienced hardship. Because they were all taught at home together, their lives were very entwined. This was a great loss to them, though they had and still have an eternal perspective. And the daughter who died knew and accepted that Jesus died for her sins. We have the greatest of hopes. 3. I offered to pray with each of my children to accept Christ at a relatively young age, but not before I had judged them cognizant enough to understand. For most of them, this was around the age of four or five, but one child was not aware enough until about age six or seven. One of the reasons I felt confident doing this is that when I was about four, a family friend offered to pray with me. Not only did I see the fruit of this childlike faith in my own life, but it is biblically based. Why would Jesus say, unless you come to me as a child, if children couldn't come to him? Why would I not want to guide my children to this choice as soon as they are able? There is no safer place in life than under God's wings. But still, I built them up in the truth and watched until they reached adulthood to know the final results of my labor, as Paul might put it. It is with great joy that we now all walk together in truth as adults, still discussing and encouraging one another. Perhaps you may ask what I would have done if they hadn't chosen the way or had seemed to stray from it. Not having had to deal with that, possibly I can't say for sure, but I think I can say on principle that I would have continued to talk to them in love and truth as much as they would let me, 
and as much as they would let me be part of their lives, and I would be praying specifically for them to turn to God. I don't know how that works, since God lets people choose whether or not to repent or turn to Him, but I do know that in His sovereignty over creation, He can work in mysterious ways, and He encourages us to pray. So my heart really does go out to any of you who, for one reason or another, have older children who have still not chosen God. However, teaching our children who God is is still the most important responsibility we have as parents. If we try to delegate it to someone else or to a religious organization, it will almost certainly be lacking and possibly distorted. But don't dig into teaching your children about who God is just because of that, just because other people would do it wrong or inadequately. Do it because of your own love of God and your love for your children. There is a level of relationship that you will be blessed with that cannot be obtained any other way. So like with many of God's commands or admonishments, what the world or the rebellious see only as onerous tasks are actually a source of life and relationship teach these things to your children. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Make sure you have signed up for the Dangerously Helpful Homeschool Dispatch. When you do, you will receive my best 25 homeschool tips. Now go out there and have fun creating a fantastic homeschooling experience for you and your children.